Greetings, and thank you for tuning in to this podcast episode focused on opioid use disorder entitled, Is Your Patient at Risk for Opioid Use Disorder? Our learning objective for this podcast is identify risk factors for opioid-related aberrant behavior. Today, we will be joined by Dr. Charles E. Argoff. Dr. Argoff is the professor of neurology and the director of the Comprehensive Pain Center at Albany Medical Center in Albany, New York. Hi, I'm Dr. Charles Argoff, and the subject of this podcast is, Is Your Patient at Risk for Opioid Use Disorder? So we're going to cover a lot of ground in a short period of time, and the ultimate goal is to be able to feel comfortable in presenting and, uh, or identifying risk factors for opioid-related aberrant behavior. Opioids remain an important component of pain management for many of our practices, and it's important to understand how we can assess the risk of their use in the patients who we treat. So there are a number of risk stratification and monitoring tools that have been utilized. Uh, several examples um, include the screener and opioid assessment for patients with pain, which is also known as SOAP, S-O-A-P-P, and the opioid risk tool, also known as the ORT. And we, if you look at these in a little bit more granular way, the opioid risk tool, or the ORT, was originally developed to consider if a person in our practice we were considering opioid prescribing for was at low, moderate, or high risk for inappropriate behaviors. And so we looked at or the way that the tool was developed, it looked at five categories and assessed the risk factor with scoring. So one category is family history of substance abuse. And there's a different scoring if one had abused, if one's family member had abused alcohol, illegal drugs, or prescription drugs. Second category is personal history of substance abuse. And similarly, different scoring. There's also somewhat different scoring if you're female or male. Age, between 16 and 45 years old, it increases the risk. So not less than 16, not over 45, but 16 to 45. A history of pre-adolescent sexual abuse actually increased the risk in females, but not in men, according to the way this risk assessment tool was developed and, and validated. And the presence of psychological disease, including conditions like attention deficit disorder, uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and depression also increase the risk. And interestingly, ADD, OCD, and bipolar disorder increase the risk more than schizophrenia or, or depression. And at the end of the scoring, you come up with a score. Even if you score zero, a person scored zero, that person is considered low risk. Moderate risk is scoring between four and seven, and high risk eight or greater. And so this gives us, this is one tool that allows us to know preferentially before prescribing long-term opioid therapy for someone, is this person at low, moderate, or high risk? And that's important because many of us, many of us practicing today may feel comfortable in prescribing in an appropriate setting for someone at moderate to high risk. And we'll touch upon that in just a few moments. Uh, others might not. And I would say this is a rhetorical question. Uh, wouldn't you want to know if you're not comfortable in prescribing to a moderate or high risk individual, whether or not that person is at moderate or high risk? The SOAP looks at five questions and it, it asks the 
person to score based upon zero, never, one seldom, two sometimes, three often, and four very often. And it's how often do you have mood swings? How often do you smoke a cigarette within an hour after you wake up? How often have you taken medication other than the way it was prescribed? How often have you used illegal drugs? And the example that the original soap included was marijuana, cocaine, and others. Of course, marijuana is considered legal, not only from a recreational point of view, but from a medical point of view in many of our states. Um, and so that may need to be updated, obviously. And how often in your lifetime have you had legal problems or been arrested? So let me just point out some other important features of, of risk assessment, and that's thinking about addiction also as opioid use disorder. And think of it as a chronic disease presenting as loss of control, compulsive use, continued use despite harm and craving. So the so-called four C's. And aberrant medication taking behaviors um, are common, but this, is, this pattern and severity of aberrant medication taking behaviors is consistent with addiction, which is a loss of control, compulsive use, continued use despite harm and craving. So addiction is a behavioral maladaptation, whereas physical dependence is a physiological adaptation. And so that physical dependence is what happens when a person goes through withdrawal. And physical dependence, as you may realize, can occur with many non-analgesic, non-pain medicines. Um, and so that is not the same. Withdrawal is not the same as addiction. Addiction is a behavioral maladaptation. Addiction is a chronic disease and addiction is related to opioid use disorder. So here, looking at opioid use disorder, the DSM-5 uh, criteria include 11, use in larger amounts or duration than intended, a persistent desire to cut down, giving up interest to use opioids, a great deal of time spent obtaining, using, or recovering from opioids, craving or strong desire to use opioids, recurrent use resulting in failure to fulfill major role obligations, uh, recurrent use in hazardous situations, continued use despite social and interpersonal problems caused by opioids, continued use despite physical or psychological problems, the development of tolerance, meaning an increased amount of opioids is required to achieve intoxication or desired effect, and a diminished effect with the continued use of the same amount of opioid. So of course, tolerance, just as an aside, can occur with appropriate use of opioids as well. And withdrawal, which is physical dependence, is so withdrawal in this setting would be a characteristic opioid withdrawal syndrome. And when the same or similar substance is taken, it relieves or avoids withdrawal symptoms. So mild OUD is meeting two to three of these criteria. Moderate OUD is four to five and severe OUD is six or greater. And it should be understood that the criterion not considered to be met for those taking opioids solely under appropriate medical supervision. So we need to recognize that we, we do, we can play a role in reducing the risk, even when risk is associated or even in, in so many different settings. So a, a very important study in Utah Department of Health statewide program demonstrated the effectiveness of patient education. So patient education itself can help reduce risks um, to reduce the unintentional death from prescription opioids. And this is a study that was done at this point over 10 years ago. And in 2008 to 2009, there was a 14% decrease in unintentional overdose deaths from prescription opioids compared with 2007. And what 
was the big difference between 2007 and the subsequent years was educating people, patients, at the initiation of opioid treatment and throughout long-term management. So yes, there are going to be people who are, who are more severely affected by the disease of addiction or opioid use disorder. We saw that in the criteria, but we also know from this study and other experiences that patient education can work. There are patient counseling guides, and these are freely available to inform patients about pain management expectations and the role of pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic modalities. Uh, a patient counseling guide can be provided to and reviewed with the patient and the care provider, a caregiver at the time of prescribing, so that people are understanding that this component of their pain management therapy is not likely to result in 100% pain relief, is not likely to help without other participating uh, or other modalities also, including their participating in exercise and other approaches as appropriate. And so a sample copy is clearly available and patient counseling is really important. It's also really important to recognize that time changes. And in 1998, in the late 90s, we started to think about using gabapentin um, as a medication to assist us in managing different types of pain problems. And many of you have probably used this um, in your practices. Um, however, over the last number of years, we've learned that there's an abuse potential to gabapentin. And so we need to also think about that in risk stratification and overall risk. So it's sometimes used by people to potentiate opioid effects. And there have been reports of abuse and misuse which have risen in recent years. And now there is mandatory reporting to the prescription drug monitoring programs of multiple states. So this adds to our risk assessment. Uh, we all as providers should have a sense of what addiction medicine um, is. So we should be knowledgeable about the basic elements of addiction medicine and be familiar with its definition, neurobiology, and pharmacotherapy of opioid use disorder. And stigmatizing or blaming patients or, or characterizing them, uh, a patient in that way, will not help patients. We need to acknowledge that addiction, which is a substance use disorder, which is opioid use disorder, when opioids are involved, is a disease. So if addiction is related to opioids, the preferred term is opioid use disorder. It's a, there's a distinction between a person who misuses an opioid analgesic in order to manage pain and one who abuses that opioid with the intent of getting high. And the prevalence of OUD in primary care is not small. There's a range and it's estimated to be between three and 26%. A little bit about the neurobiology of addiction so we can maybe ground that in what, what is really going on in some of our patients. Well, neuronal pathways form reward circuits within the dopamine systems which originate in the ventral tegmental area and project to the nucleus accumbens, amygdala, and prefrontal cortex. And activation of these circuits causes euphoria and reinforcement of drug-seeking behaviors. You might not be surprised to learn that opioids induce dopamine release. And so there are multiple domains that contribute to addiction, including the biology of that person, the genetics of that person, environmental and social factors, as well as exposure. So you may very well see somebody in your practice who is otherwise has no history of, an, of addiction, substance use disorder, who's never been exposed to a particular drug. And there are many instances of this that have been reported. Uh, and, and then once they are exposed, the biology and the genetics behind this and perhaps the environment and social factors um, lead to the development or the blossoming, so to speak, of opioid use disorder. 
And so that's why we really have to be mindful of this and uh, always do a risk assessment and 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 act in that act act on that concern for risk. We also, because of that, we need to take a universal precautions approach. So that's kind of a segue from what I just said. Screen all people to whom you are prescribing opioids for, for a possible risk of addiction or opioid use disorder. We need to assume that all patients, all of us, we're all potential patients, have a certain degree of risk. And there are validated screening tools, which I talked about already, but there's also the opioid risk tool, which has been now validated by, by investigators at the University of Pennsylvania for OUD. We'll go through that in just a second. There's also um, an additional tool called the Current Opioid Misuse Measure, or COM, which is a very commonly used tool for people on long-term opioid therapy. So the Opioid Risk Tool, or OUD, or OUD, um, is similar in the, in the categories, but also is scored differently. Um, and again, the total risk category is low risk, moderate risk, and high risk. And so it's important to think about that as well um, when you have established a person on opioid therapy. Risk assessment for opioid use disorder can be help, helped by screening tool results, patient concerns. They may bring up their own concerns. You might see a concern and you might be able to stratify risk based upon the PDMP, Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, results where you see a pattern um, I work in New York State where I'm, I must look before I prescribe any controlled substance, including, for example, anticonvulsants that might be controlled substances or other medicines. Um, and it's amazing how some people don't tell you, I mean, it's not amazing and I'm not being naive, but it's important to recognize the importance of looking at PDMP results. You're in drug screening results. How many of us do a baseline, and it should be done, it's recommended, based on urine drug screen before prescribing on a long-term basis? And you, we should suspect OUD if there's consistent or even any behavior outside of the, uh, the agreements that we've had with our patients. And if you suspect it, assess for it. Okay, so we went through the criteria and assessment already. I'd like to call back, again, there are 11 criteria um, that can separate someone into mild, moderate, and severe. Um, and interestingly, you know, because tolerance and withdrawal can occur with proper use, if somebody is using medicine properly, uh, they may meet criteria for mild OUD, but we need to carve that out if they're not otherwise uh, um, experiencing um, uh, behaviors consistent with OUD. The CDC guideline recommendations for OUD recommends that if we do recognize opioid use disorder, we should offer or arrange evidence-based treatment for people with OUD, and that is available. So medication-assisted treatment with methadone or buprenorphine in combination with behavioral therapies is established, and we can, should consider offering naloxone for overdose prevention. There are referral sources for abuse and addiction uh, treatment. So the SAMHSA or Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has a buprenorphine physician located, an opioid treatment program directory, a whole system of provider clinical support system for opioid therapies, as well as a similar system for medication assistant treatment with, with many resources on these websites and many uh, educational programs that um, are really worthwhile looking at. Um, and so if your patient needs treatment for abuse and addiction, know the treatment centers in your area, work out a plan with the center you're referring to, and be, have a clear indication um, when there's a clear indication of abuse or addiction, appropriately discontinue prescribing of opioids, um, especially if it's harmful to the patient. 
and treatment of opioid use disorder. That only includes referring to a treatment program, medication for, uh, for addiction treatment, um, and we mentioned methadone and buprenorphine, um, even opioid antagonist therapy, so naltrexone tablets and depot intramuscular approaches. Um, but the in incorporation of medication-free uh, recovery, if possible, and naloxone uh, co-prescribing to emphasize that point, and to also emphasize that medication is not the only answer. Medication and behavioral approaches really do help even more. But treating pain in the person with a substance use disorder is still important. Uh, we do need to treat people um, who have substance use disorder when their pain requires treatment. And treating such a person is among the most challenging experiences in medicine. So certainly we want to consider doing a multidisciplinary pain management approach if, if possible. We want to avoid other potentially problematic medications and we want to establish a plan that addresses both the pain and opioid use disorder because un not treating the pain is actually a trigger for relapse. So we have already mentioned for substance use disorder, for opioid use disorder, buprenorphine, but buprenorphine can be used for both pain and opioid use disorder. There are several preparations of buprenorphine that are used for both. Um, and so that's important. Uh, consider using opioids that do not metabolize to other prescribed medications, unless that's significant other to secure and dispense opioids so that there's a check on that. And activate um, an active recovery program to help people continue in the recovery process. And don't let your guard down. So remember to use your drug screening, the prescription drug monitoring programs, pill count, and a patient provider agreement. There are alternative treatments for opioid use disorder. And these include, uh, besides using some of the recommended treatments already, um, the most effective withdrawal method is of substituting and tapering methadone or buprenorphine alone. So you could use a number of different approaches, uh, including uh, intramuscular subcutaneous injections, um, as well as buprenorphine naloxone uh, combinations like oral subsolve or suboxone. And the best outcome occurs with long-term maintenance on methadone or buprenorphine accompanied by appropriate psychosocial interventions. Clonidine or lefexidine, which are alpha-2 adrenergic agents, can ameliorate uh, untreated symptoms or substitute for agonists if not available. And another alpha-2 adrenergic ag agent that, I, that I've seen helpful in certain settings is tizanidine. Not indicated for this, but I've used it when the other ones were not available or not helpful. And those with strong external motivation may do well on naltrexone, either PO or IM. In conclusion, it's important to assess whether or not your patient is at risk for opioid use disorder. However, once you assess for that risk, it's also important, as the content in this podcast has emphasized, to act on that risk assessment and put into place a program that can assist that person if opioid use disorder is present not only in treating the opioid use disorder, but also in continuing to help manage that person's pain. Thank you for your time.